Matthew 7. This might be a little dangerous, but uh, you know that you've been to a good Texas barbecue place when you come out smelling like the food that you've ate, right? I mean, isn't that how that works? Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't. Well, okay. So we got some people pretty fired up about barbecue in Texas, and, and I'm one of them. I actually never had brisket before until I came to Texas. I was actually candidating here, and I was at an elders meeting. I was meeting the elders and supposed to answer questions, but I couldn't concentrate because I was eating this sort of beef that I'd never had before. It was brisket. And my one question I had was, what is it that we're eating? You know, so... But, you know, you know, when you've been to a good Texas barbecue place, you know, one of those little side places along out in backwoods there and you just go in and, and it just smells good. Right. And you just partake in all this food. And, and when you leave there, I, I think you know this, but you leave just smelling like the place. It's in your hair. It, it takes a couple of days for that to get out. It's in your clothes. And people can smell you from about a half mile away. Just kind of coming like, oh, yeah, here he comes. Right. And. And it's, it's really interesting because you spend the whole day just sharing the joy of your barbecue experience with everybody that you come across. Because, you see, what happens is where you've been is now part of who you are. And it, and it lasts. Well, there's some parallels to that. You see, we who have come to know Christ, we spend time with him. We engage his word. There's his characteristics. His life is to be emanating from us. We should be different. People should be able to see and tell that we're, per, we're someone who spent time with Jesus and we are actually following his word. And there are some characteristics that the spirit of God seeks to develop in our life that Jesus is actually going through on this Sermon on the Mount. And when we come to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to see that because we follow Jesus Christ as Lord, it should be evident in our life in some specific ways. And one of those is that you and I, because we've entered into a relationship with Christ, we actually now exercise spiritual discernment. And that all gets started by avoiding a judgmental attitude. When we come to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to come to some of the most oft-quoted and often misinterpreted words in the New Testament. See if they're not familiar to you. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Heard this before? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, at first glance, this kind of seems like a radical departure. Jesus has been going through his message, talking about righteousness, talking about the true intent of the heart, talking about not making sure you got it figured out. Who's your master? Is it God or is it money? Talking about not being anxious to live in a security, secure relationship with Christ, seeking first his kingdom and heaven. And then all of a sudden Jesus jumps in and says, now, listen, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Jesus actually brings this to our attention because The last thing he wants is for his followers to end up like the Pharisees who are hypercritical, judgmental, always passing down judgment to the people they come in contact with. And so he's not saying that you don't exercise discernment. He's talking about how you and I actually do so in this world. The word uh, judge here is Greek word krino. It's where we get our word criticize or the critic. And he's saying, don't go through life with this hypercritical, self-righteous, judgmental 
attitude. There's kind of like two different types of judgment. There's the harmful. That's the one where you're always looking to attack someone. It's reckless. You're always finding the faults of everybody else. It's self-righteous. It's some sort of like fault finding mission. That's the harmful. But the helpful one is when you are judging, ascertaining, discerning according to to God's righteousness as he's revealed himself in his word. It's in keeping with his character. And so you have to exercise discernment and judgment. This isn't like saying, hey, this is how it's usually used. Hey, remember what it says, don't judge. And so we just feel like, oh, that's right. I can't do anything. I can't exercise the sermon. Well, that is absolutely not the case. In fact, we as followers of Christ need to exercise discernment. We've got to be able to actually discern what is right and wrong, good from evil. I mean, there's, you can't actually live the Christian life and walk in, in true doctrine if you're unable to do that. For instance... The church has to actually be able to discern between serious sins and have to be able to say, no, you know, what you're doing is is actually not in keeping with the Lord has written in his word. Uh, Believers have to be able to judge when someone is speaking and if they're speaking doctrinal truth. Is it in keeping with the word? So like yesterday, I'm at my house. Get this knock on the door. You know, I'm thinking, okay, neighborhood kids want to play football. Someone wants to sell me something. Yesterday they were trying to sell this alarm system. Okay, who's at the door now? You open it up and here's the gentleman and he's he's got an invitation to join them at Kingdom Hall for a little discussion about Jesus. And so, you know, he he pointed out that that Jesus is the uh, actually has paid the penalty for sin. I said, really, that's great news. So. He, he must be God then. Oh, oh no. He, he's not God. He, well, in order to forgive sins, he's got to be God. And so, you know, began discussion. He's absolutely convinced that no, Jesus is not God. And so, you know, I just I said, hey, I see you got your Bible there. New World Translation. A terrible translation. Only three translators. Only one of them had a remote knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. And I said, well, you know, let's take a look here. John chapter 20, verse 28. What did Thomas say? About Jesus when he saw him in his resurrected state. I had him read it. And it says right there in their terrible translation, my Lord and my God. I said, look at you guys got that one right. And he just he froze. And uh, so then he he didn't even have a response. So he said, well, what about this? And I, I answered his question. I said, you know, it's, what did you guys write on John 518 where, where, you know, Jesus is calling the father, his own father, therefore making himself equal with God. And sure enough, it's right there. It says that exact thing, making himself equal with God. You've got to be able to discern truth from error. You've got to be able to make judgments. That's the helpful. That is in keeping with God and his revelation. So when a Michigan pastor by the name of Rob Bell writes a book called Love Wins, and it stirs up all sorts of great controversy, and the premise is that you do not have to believe in Jesus Christ in this life as Savior and Lord to go to heaven. That's not, that sounds nice. Like, whoa, well, that eliminates a lot of things here. Everybody just kind of makes their way to heaven. They always, even if they die without ever truly trusting Christ or repenting from their sin, they go to heaven. Well, guess what? Missions is over. We don't have to worry about translating the Bible or anything else. Is that what the scripture says? I mean, even think about it. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. What? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not what? 
perish. What happens if you do not believe in the son of God who came to this world? You what? You perish. But you know why so many people are like, hey, that well, that sounds good. Because we have moved to a point where we're now biblically illiterate. We've even forgotten John 3.16. We're either so familiar with it, we forgot what it says, or we're not actually looking what the scripture says. Like John chapter 3 really paints the picture really clear. You either believe in the Son and have life, life eternal and forgiveness of sins, or you reject him and you perish. And so you have to exercise judgment. You don't go, well, can't judge, must be right. Those two both cannot be true. They are absolute antithetical opposites. And so you and I have to exercise judgment. We've got to discern, for instance, you know, when Paul said, do not be bound together with unbelievers, speaking of a union you make, whether that be like, hey, I think I'd go into business and start my business with this non-believer or worse yet, marriage. I'll get him to change once I marry him. He'll then trust my savior once he sees how lovely I am. And you find out, ah, it doesn't work that way. You've got to exercise what? Discernment, judgment. You got to figure out who's faint hearted, who's weak, who's rebellious, who's factious, who's unruly. And you've got to be able to discern and you have to act appropriately. But what Jesus is after here is how you go about uh, exercising discernment. And one of the things I want to point out there, it's not if you judge, you're going to be judged. Notice what it says. Look at verse two. For in the way. You judge. Everybody exercises judgment and discernment. Jesus is saying the way that you go about it is how it's going to come back upon you. So if you are always assuming that a person is wrong, you always think that they have ill will. They are always trying to malign different people. That's going to come back. People are going to start evaluating you that way because that's how you evaluate and judge others. On the other hand, if you want to be dealt with fairly, with equity, with grace, with mercy, with truth, and that is how you exercise your judgment, then that is how people are going to exercise judgment for you, or at least that is the general pattern. And so what Jesus is driving here is saying, you've got to exercise spiritual discernment, and you need to avoid a judgmental attitude. Now, it's really interesting because in Matthew chapter 6, we just got done talking about people and money, and not being anxious for anything. Here's one of the ways that actually a lot of Christians cast judgment. It's on they're evaluating others on what they're doing with their finances. For instance, they drive a nice car and they don't say this, but not sold out for Jesus, huh? They look at their house, their house a little nicer than yours. Obviously, they're not kingdom minded. But then, of course, somebody drives up with their old clunker and, and your car's like, you're a little bit nicer. And you're like, oh, they don't take care of their stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, and, you, and what happens is you develop this judgmental mindset toward all these people. It's, it's interesting. That's why Jesus is saying this now. Because the, the problem is this. And this happens in, in, in Christendom. It's actually one of the reasons why many non-Christians really want very little to do with the church. Because we have slipped into the very patterns of being hypercritical, judgmental toward other people. The very thing the Savior warned, do not judge like that. Do not be like that. I want you to be like me. And so the same standard that you're judging others, 
that's how you're going to be judged and evaluated as well. Now, not only are we to avoid a judgmental attitude, but we have to be addressing our own spiritual maturity. Look what he says, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, this is called hyperbole. In case you're like, oh, what? A log? How could a log get in someone's eye? Really? Okay, it's, it's exaggeration meant for it to drive home a point, for intent, okay? It's a literary device. It's called hyperbole. Jesus used it a lot. Remember, he said, like, why don't you just cut off your hand if you're having a problem with that? Gouge out your eye if you've got a lust issue. Why is he saying it's so serious of a matter, you need, to take, you need to take it to heart? But does he literally want everybody to take their eye out, cut their hand off? Or is there literally a log in someone's eye? No, it's hyperbole. But what he's saying is, why are you noticing the speck in your brother's eye, but you yourself have a rather significant issue? You've got a log in yours. Where he says, verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so what Jesus is saying is that you and I, we need to be addressing personal maturity in our own life. And the best way to minister to others is to be healthy yourself. And so he's actually using a picture of actually one of the most sensitive parts of your body. Your eye. I mean, you poke, if you poke yourself in the eye, like, uh, you know what I'm saying? You poke yourself in the arm, not a big deal. You get just a little fleck or speck of something like that, like sawdust. And maybe Jesus is drawing back from those years of being a carpenter in Nazareth. And every carpenter has had the joy of what? Having sawdust in there, like, ah, you know what I'm saying? Your eye gets all red, you can't see. Hopefully you stop working at that point with your saws. But nonetheless, Jesus is probably drawing upon experiences that would be very common to the people like getting a piece of sawdust in your eye. And so the reason that you and I actually address and assess our own spiritual health is so that we will actually be in a position so that we'll be able to help others also. And so he says, you've got to first of all address what's going on in your life. Now, let's just talk about the flip side of this. If you have sawdust in your eyes, If you have issues and problems, the very best thing to do is to be able to actually have someone help you address that. Now, most people with problems realize that and actually want help, but not all. Some can be very defensive about their deficiencies. There's a pride that comes in and it's kind of like it's if you've got a a sin issue or a character or a behavioral issue, people know about that. You'll think like, oh, well, they don't really know. When you're clamoring around, like, get away from me, and you're, you know, and you got your issue, they see that. And the right thing to do is, is find someone who is spiritual, who's going to be able to help you overcome that. So you don't have to be living like that, hurting yourself and damaging others. But what Jesus is saying here is, you've got to be a spiritual individual to care for the spiritual needs of others. And just like it takes great amounts of sensitivity to to remove a fleck of sawdust out of someone's eye, so it is to address character issues, behavior issues, sin issues in the life of another. Now, has anybody ever had something in your eye that I... Okay, is that just totally unpleasant? Yeah. I remember as a kid, uh, my dad got a fleck of metal 
in his eye. I don't know if we were working on the boat or what, but he and it was excruciating. And I mean, my dad, very strong man, was completely incapacitated by this this piece of metal in his eye. And so we lived in the mountains. That meant as a hundred mile trip to get to a doctor that could deal with that. And that's what we always would do. So we drove all the way to Great Falls, Montana. I remember, you know, there's dad and the seat's all back. He's got this towel over his face, you know. He's sick because of the pain that he's experiencing. And we're driving through the mountains to get to a doctor who can skillfully, gently, oh, so carefully remove that fleck of metal out of his eye to restore health to his body. That's what we need to be. We need to be people who are exercising Spiritual discernment. There is maturity in our life. We have gone through an analysis. We have yielded our life to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. And it's not that we're perfect, but that we are, we've addressed and are addressing the sin issues in our life so that we may help others. There's kind of two extremes to be avoided when it comes to spiritual self-examination. One is the, just kind of the glance, I'm good, look at me, and you just go, you never actually really look at the character issues. You make this radical assumption You're fine. And if anybody ever tried to tell you differently, like, hey, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this one thing could really help you. And then they become your chief enemy. That is probably an indication that you are short on self-analysis. The other extreme, though, is what we could call the perpetual self-occupation with self. You were just always focused about you. And and it's all and, and you almost forget about Christ And generally, these people, they just feel so terrible about themselves. They are focusing on their sin, sin in their past. It's like they forget Christ, his righteousness. They're no longer living in the reality of the gospel. And the reality of the gospel is that, yes, we are sinners. We are fallen. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. And by believing in him, we are forgiven and experience new life, a new way of life. And we move forward by faith in our relationship with Christ. And so the the person that's just perpetually self-occupied, though, they actually never move past self. And what happens over time is that life is just always about them. And they actually never emerge to what we would call ministry. But you've got to evaluate yourself carefully and correctly through the spirit of God, using the word of God, your life. Remember a guy by the name of David? David had a lot of good things going for him, but uh, a little bit later in life, there was an incident that took place in his life with this woman named Bathsheba. And you know all the gory details about that. I mean, a terrible, terrible sin. Adultery led to murder. David, King David. Well, he's in kind of his perpetual state of denying and his sin. I mean, just can you imagine what is taking place in this man's heart? And remember, God sends the prophet Nathan, says, I want you to go pay my man David a visit. And so he does. Remember, he tells him this little story about this really wealthy livestock owner. He had all these sheep, you know, and then there was this one little guy and all he had this little lamb. And he took care of the lamb and the lamb, made his food and he fed the lamb and he held the lamb and he just literally loved that lamb. And then remember, the, the rich guy had a guest come by and he's like, yeah, i got to feed this guy something good to eat. And he said, instead of any of his sheep. He'd go take the one, that little lamb, from that guy. And so he did. Remember that? And, he, and Nathan's telling the story to David. He took it and he killed it and he fed it to his guest. And Nathan asked him, what do you, what do you think should do? Oh, David just become mad. Oh, he said, that guy should die. Remember? 
And then he's like, well, he's got to he's got to pay back fourfold. And then Nathan said, uh, you're the man. And all of a sudden he spells it out and David just becomes unraveled right there. You see, David was real good about making judgments against wealthy livestock owners who were taking advantage of a poor person. But he had lost his moral bearings and his ability to perceive his own condition of his soul. Friends, if you and I are going to be involved in the lives of others, we're going to exercise spiritual discernment. We have got to take stock of our own spiritual maturity. So we've got to stop being judgmental. It's kind of like I was reading this lady, Kathy Plate. She's right to the experience of she just goes and visits one of her neighbors and they got this little five year old boy. Andrew pulls out his kindergarten picture, you know, with the class. And he goes and he starts naming off the people and he goes, well, this is Robert. Robert, he hits everyone. Here's Stephen. Stephen never listens to the teacher. Here's Mark. He's he's very loud and very noisy. And he chases us. And then, oh, and here's me. I'm just sitting there minding my own business. <laughs> you know, that kindergarten mindset can have carryover value long after we leave that first class. You and I can be judgmental and never really looking at our own heart issues. And so what we need is spiritual discernment. And that will help us how to best address and engage others. And so what we want to do is if we're going to minister to people, we ourselves have to be spiritual. okay? and when we deal with people's issues, you deal with them with sensitivity. okay? he says, verse five, you take the log out of your own eye. You were going to be in a position to what? To see clearly, to take the speck out of your brother's eye, because after all, this is really about God and his glory and the health of his body. And so we want to help people grow. That is where maturity takes place, when you actually overcome these sin issues, your behavioral problems, your character issues, and you grow more in Christ likeness. And so you got to be sensitive. You can't be you just poking people and being mean about it. You actually have to enter exercise gentleness. And when you're dealing with sin issues, let me give you Galatians chapter six, verse one. He says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Just like every one of us wants our doctors to treat us with kindness care, sensitivity, especially to the pain issues in our life. So it is for those who are involved in spiritual ministry. You help them and you do so with gentleness. Now, Jesus then kind of makes another startling statement in verse six. He says, verse six, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and in turn tear you to pieces. And so what he's doing, he's kind of balancing these different warnings. And he's saying, don't cast precious truth to people who absolutely despise you and everything that you have to say. Now, dogs. OK, if you're picturing like your little pet that sits on your lap while you're driving to H-E-B, you know what I'm saying? Which is crazy and looking out the window and stuff like that. And you're like, I'm having trouble staying in my lane, you know, because you get your dog all over you and stuff like that. Or you got a little domesticated pet and you call Sparky and he comes and he lays right at your feet. Dogs were not like that in the time of Jesus. There really were no domesticated dogs. They were wild, running around. They were vicious, ravenous, 
you'd stay away from them. Pigs the same way. Pigs were actually unclean by the law, but they were just scavengers, you know, and, and they didn't care what they're eating as long as they're eating. They're just consuming everything. Pigs are interested in peas, not pearls. And so you wouldn't just like cast these beautiful pearls and they're gone. Whoa, what happened? Did you know what you just ate? Oh, I don't care. Give me some more. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of how it is. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you exercise spiritual discernment. But, you know, that doesn't mean that you just keep throwing and giving, presenting truth to people that could care less and just tear you apart. We we kind of like to think that Jesus would talk to anybody and it just didn't matter how hard their hearts were that he would just keep presenting truth to them. And so we think we should do the exact same. But actually, Jesus put this principle into play. It's pretty fascinating to see how much of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus actually exercises or gives examples of as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus, for instance, remember in his hometown, Nazareth? Remember how they just loved him in Nazareth? Right. They loved him so much, they hated him, they hated his message. In fact, in Luke, they were actually going to throw him over off the cliff. And it says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, that Jesus didn't do many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. He's like, you don't want the truth? You malign me? You don't care? You take the pearls of the kingdom and you treat it like a hog? I'm not going to do much here. Or remember in, in Matthew 15, we're going to come to this. He, tells, he speaks about the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, just listen. Let them alone. Let them alone. They are blind guides to the blind. They are not interested. They continue to have a hardened heart. They treat me and my message as an enemy. Or remember the chief priests and the scribes? Remember when after they had apprehended Jesus and they're going through their mock trials and they're making all sorts of accusations against him? They are they're yelling at him. They want him to speak. In fact, the whole council is against him. They want to put him to death. And so the high priest, he said, enough of this Jesus who will not speak to him. And he says this. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And what did Jesus do? Jesus kept silent. Remember another guy that he's going to meet just a little bit later on, Herod Antipas. Remember the guy that beheaded John the Baptist? Read about that in Matthew 14. Well, Herod had wanted to see Jesus for a long time. He was hoping that Jesus might do some miracles. He was kind of looking for a little sideshow magician for his kingdom. And he'd heard about Jesus and all the things he did. And so here's his big opportunity. And it says they asked him all sorts of questions. Jesus answered none of them. So they played their true colors. We know what they started doing. They started abusing him, mocking him, dressed him in a purple robe, abused him. Paul. Remember Paul on his missionary journeys? He goes, he presents the gospel in the synagogue. They just hate him. They hate everything that he's saying. And so what does he say? He says in Acts chapter 13, listen, since you repudiate the word of God, it's fine. I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. That made them furious. And so this principle here is you have to exercise discernment. We are looking for people that will at least listen to the message. But, you know, you know, and there's and it's it's hard to kind of figure that out. I mean, I've talked to people that are very hostile against Christ and say all sorts of mean things. And it's you've got to pick your battles carefully and you've got to pick your words carefully. But there's people that just are outright rejecting. And every time you open up your mouth and 
they try to share the gospel and they just want to tear you apart. You have to exercise discernment. Maybe you need to wait and maybe you need to do what he's talking about in this next upcoming part of the passage. Pray. But you need to exercise spiritual discernment. Guess who does this? Those who've been with the master. Those who've been with God and his word. You see, because we're following Jesus as our Lord, we can exercise spiritual discernment. Let me tell you something else that we can do that Jesus highlights. We can experience a supreme dependence. You and I live differently because we're in a relationship with the living God. And one of the primary differences in our life is that we actually pray. We don't just talk about prayer or we don't just say, I will pray for you. We actually pray. And you want to know what prayer looks like? Well, he actually shows you. Verse seven, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Verse eight, for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Anybody do that? Your son says, I'm really hungry. Could I have a loaf of bread? You're like, <laughs> here, try this rock. How does that work? Okay. Would you do that? No. Or verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, really? You, want a, you just want a sardine? Let's see what I can find for you. <laughs> and he'll give him a snake, will he? Would you do that? No, you wouldn't. Verse 11. If you then being evil... If you want to see someone who believes in total depravity, Jesus does. He says, you are evil. You need my righteousness. You need me. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? What he's saying here is, friends, one of the big differences between our life and the rest of the world is that we truly live in the relationship with God and we can talk to him. In fact, he says we are asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. This is a way of life. And if we have earthly fathers that know how to give good gifts, how much more our heavenly father will give us good spiritual gifts, give us what we need in this life. And James picked up on this. James was Jesus half brother. James chapter one, verse five. He said, you know, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who will give to all men generously without reproach and it will be given to him. And so when we come to this, we come looking at what does the text say? Now, this isn't just kind of a carte blanche. We'll just take this verse out of context and you just ask Jesus for whatever you want. And, and so we generally focus on the material. Right. And it's usually for who? For us, right? And we kind of treat God as a little celestial Santa Claus. And we put this little verse, Matthew chapter 7, where we put it right there, right there. Because after all, God just wants me to just ask him for anything that I want to make my life better so I can have the best life now. Right? Wrong. It's not how it works. You take this in context. What has Jesus been saying in context? He's been talking about what righteousness looks like. Living right. Seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Having the right attitude and approach toward women and uh, dealing with our money and dealing with anger issues. And so we ask God and we keep asking God. We seek and we knock and God will give everything we need to fulfill the righteousness he's asking for us in his life. He's given us Christ. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. And he says, keep asking, keep seeking, 
keep knocking, I will give you what you need. You've got earthly fathers and they'll give you good stuff. How much more your heavenly father? And so you seek, you knock, you ask, and he will provide. Now, sometimes we, we think this, like, God just needs to rescue me anytime. For instance, I was reading this uh, Larry Crabb, and he was telling this story about how he was locked in the bathroom. He locked himself in the bathroom as a three-year-old. You know, he's establishing independence, and everything's going fine on his little first time in the little bathroom journey there, except when he's trying to get out, and he can't unlock the door. So he goes into this panic, and he starts screaming so loud that his parents can hear him. He thought even the neighbors could hear him. He's screaming, help, get me out of here, you know? And... And uh, his mom and dad come running up the stairs like, what's the matter? Did you hit your head? What's wrong? I can't get out of the bathroom. I can't unlock it. Uh, So dad runs down the stairs. He gets the ladder and he puts it up against the house. He uses his strength, opens up the window, goes through the window, walks right past little Larry, opens the door. And he goes, thanks, dad. And he goes outside and goes playing. We think that's how God should work for us. Oh, I made a big mess myself. Oh, this is terrible. I'm stuck. We call out to God. God's going to get the ladder. He's going to open the door and he's going to just let us go out into the big play fields of blessing. And so we think that's how it works until we realize it doesn't always work that way. You see, what happens when, uh, for instance, the marriage doesn't heal? What happens when the rebellious kids still keep rebelling? What happens when you're betrayed by friends? What happens when financial reverses threaten your way of life or the prospect of terrorism continues to loom or your health worsens and you keep praying and it's actually getting worse, not better? Or loneliness intensifies or depression deepens or your ministry dies. What happens when we're asking, seeking and knocking? See, what happens is God wants our heart And what we're asking for to be aligned with his will. And he wants to bring us to a point where we are absolutely, completely content in Christ and Christ alone. And so in our asking and our seeking, what we find is that this is what prayer does. Prayer actually aligns us with the will of God. Once you move past like, God, I need a new sports car or things like those sort of things. or I wish I'd have. To real heart matters. Lord, help me to love my neighbor. Father, help me to forgive. Give me, Lord, the ability not to allow anger to rule my life. Help me be content in you. Lord, help me to seek first your kingdom. God, help me with my money because it is so alluring. In fact, I feel its pull on my life. I want to be your man or your woman fully. God, help me. What happens is prayer actually aligns us with the will of God. And God will open the doors. He will give us what we need when we need it. But sometimes God just wants us to be with him in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the heartache. Not only to give a testimony to the world of what it looks like to trust God in the midst of great heartache, but for you and I to know the Lord in a real deep way. I know in our church family, we have people going through some Pretty serious issues, emotional, relational, health, physical issues. It is in those times 
God can either bring us to a point of greater depth and contentment and peace with God, even when our bodies and some aspects of our life are falling apart. Or what happens is we become jaded and bitter and our soul goes to a very dark place. What he says, just keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And then let me give you just one other final trait about spending time with God and following Jesus as Lord. Not only are we going to exercise spiritual discernment and experience a supreme dependence, but let me give you one final one. It's found in verse 12. We can express sincere kindness. As soon as I read this verse, you're like, oh, yeah, I know all about that one. I've heard that verse. And yet uh, it's kind of like verses that we're so familiar with. It's almost like we forget to practice them. He says, verse 12, in everything. Do you see that? In everything. Therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. We know this is called by what? What do people? The golden rule. Now, what is the golden rule? If if you think the golden rule is he with all the gold rules, that's actually not the golden rule. That is, that's not it. It sounds cute, uh, but that's not right. The golden rule is treat others the way you want them to treat you. And it's really interesting. Now, there were versions of this uh, long before Jesus makes this uh, proclamation here in verse 12. Uh, You can find it in Buddhism, Confucius, even the uh, Rabbi Hillel actually had this. However, it's very interesting. They all had it in the negative. Okay, don't do certain things. Jesus states this in the positive. Do this. Treat people the way you want to be treated. It's not that you refrain from being mean to people. You abstain from being evil or bad toward others, but that you actually positively you are treating people the way you want them to be treated. It's more than passive. It's far more than that. It's actively pursuing treating people the way you would want to be treated. So how do you want to be treated? You want people to what? Be gracious with you, kind, forgiving, giving you the benefit of the doubt, right? You want people to maybe go the extra yard to help you? Well, that's exactly how you want people, how you want to treat others. In fact, that's really a very simple policy. Tomorrow, today, however you would like to be treated, actively treat someone that way. Why don't you start with your spouse? See how that'll work. Whoa, you'll have a great marriage if you would just do that. But try it in your family. Try it with folks in the church. Try it at work. Treat people the way you would want to be treated. So it's kind of like if I ask you this question, hey, did you treat her or him well? And you go, well, I wasn't mean to him. No, that wasn't the question. The question is, were you nice? Were you a blessing? You got to move past like it's all about me to actively reflecting the love and the light of Christ. You are, after all, salt and light, right? And we actively treat other people the way we would want to be treated, with grace, with kindness, with care, and with concern. And this is how how the life of Christ is truly manifested in us. And you see, when people see us exercising spiritual discernment, when people see us truly trusting God with everything, seeking Him, knocking, asking, praying, When people see us truly treating people with a love, a love like Jesus, they will know that we are with him.
You know, this is especially important when you and I are treated poorly. It'd be sure nice if if no one ever treated us bad, no one ever said bad things about us or evil or maligned us. But the reality is, guess what? It's going to happen. This will be really where the proof and the pudding comes. How will you treat them? What happens when someone takes a a criticism grenade and they kind of lob that right over to you? What's going to happen? You see this verse here? Treat them the way you would want to be treated. Craig Goschel, he's a he's a pastor and he wrote this in this book, Confessions of a Pastor. He wrote this experience where he was at his church and it was shortly before he was going to preach. He said he was standing there, his hands were folded. He was praying and talking and focusing on God. And somebody placed a little note in his hand while he was praying, just just right before he's going to preach. And it has a, he looked at it. He didn't see who gave it to him. And it said the word personal. It's like, oh, wow. Some dear saint in the church wrote me just a personal note of encouragement right before I'm going to stand up and, and give this message. He had these warm, fuzzy feelings that come, you know, and you feel like, wow, somebody actually likes me or cares about me or respects me. He opens up his little note and he said he lost the loving feeling. This note was written by a woman that stopped by the church office on Friday, his day off. He wasn't there. So she writes, just blasts him, just assassinates his character on this little piece of paper. It's like 30 seconds and I'm going to stand up on stage and I'm just feeling, whoa. He says, you know, I had a choice. I could be demoralized and discouraged. Or I could ask myself, what is causing this woman that much pain that she'd have a disproportionate reaction to her situation? Friends, to move to maturity means that you don't just overreact or you go tit for tat. You looked at me funny. I'm going to look at you funny. You said something that wasn't quite nice. I'm going to come back. Maturity comes when we're like Jesus. Maturity comes when these passages come into play in our life. We treat others the way we would want to be treated. And so he said, you know what? I chose compassion over depression. And I let my heart then start being more concerned with what's going on that's so broken inside her that would cause her to lash out like this. Friends, this is what Jesus desires in our life. And everything he asks from us, he will empower us to do. That we will live not only like him, but through him, follow his word. You see, knowing Jesus is Lord leads to showing that Jesus is Lord in our life. And when we do, people are going to find that there is evidence of his presence in us. And Lord, let's ask the Lord. This would be the reality in all of us. Lord, I want to thank you for the clarity of your word. And you address issues that perhaps if had gone unspoken, that we would live rampantly in the wrong direction, casting judgment here and there, ending up like Pharisees and scribes, the very same ones that were so hardened to the gospel in the first place. So, Father, I pray that we would have a true spiritual discernment, starting with ourselves. If there's fault and sin in our own life, we would confess it and address it and trust you. Give us a heart to minister to others. I pray, Father, that you would find us seeking you, knocking, asking, continually praying. I pray that this week 
prayer life would increase at Fellowship Bible Church. And Father, help us to actively treat others the way we would want to be treated. We do this not only just for the joy of living well, but for the joy of glorifying you in this life. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.